about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. First Bible readings from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's 2 Samuel chapter 7 on page 301 of your Pew Bibles. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I I commanded to to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from, the, from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning." and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom." He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he, is, when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O Sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? 
For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt? You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Hi, I'm Beck, and I'll be reading the second reading tonight, which is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, and it can be found on page 1142. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. Well, good evening. I'm Michael. Um, make sure you have 2 Samuel open. We're going to go through it, uh, pretty much all the way through it. Beforehand, let me pray. Lord Jesus, um, show us more of the greatness and the glory and the grace of God in this passage, and by your Spirit, uh, help us to respond uh, as you desire and live for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hopefully this will work. 
one of these buttons. Nope. Oh, there we go. Cool. Okay. Well, we're in uh, 2 Samuel 7, um, and it's good to work out exactly where are we, because uh, this is... Uh, Matt said earlier, a really important passage in the Bible, uh, and hopefully at the end of this passage, at the end of this little uh, talk, you'll see how important it is. But the big picture of the Bible is basically a story of God creating the world in Eden, and the fall happening, and then God working to restore and recreate uh, Eden in this new Eden that we get, which is also known as heaven. And where we are with King David is pretty much in the middle of the Old Testament, of the old uh, part of the story before Jesus comes. So if you see there in the picture, Abraham is given promises by God. About a thousand years later, David turns up where we are now. And then about a thousand years after David, Jesus arrives on the scene. And so this passage particularly is speaking of these promises to Abraham and to recreate the fall through Jesus. That's where we're heading. Um, But as we get there, we'll have to go through this passage and see what exactly is happening. Now, there's a guy called Robert Alter who is a uh, literature professor somewhere in the United States. Uh, He's a Jewish guy. He's not a believer. Uh, But he has written a lot about David uh, and the David story. And he says that this story, this narrative, is actually the most beautiful and best narrative literature in the world Ever. And I think he's right. Uh, if you've been reading 1 2 Samuel, uh, and I hope you have been, if you haven't, start doing it, please, uh, you'll see that these are beautiful stories. Um, the author has really uh, done such a beautiful job of presenting people as real people. And as you read through the story, as we read through these chapters, we see that these are not one dimensional people that he's describing. They're often ambiguous. They have mixed motives. They are great and they are stupid, the same person. Uh, They decide to see God glorify one minute and then the next minute they're acting so selfishly and trying to glorify themselves. They are real people. Uh, They are like you. They are like me. And so David is one of these real people. And at this point in the narrative, uh, we're about a third of the way through the second book. David is at his peak. You could say he's in the golden years. Almost everything he touches turns to gold. And yet, in the last two chapters, if you've been reading carefully, you'll see that despite these great achievements that he's he's managed to do, there's also some very worrying signs of things happening in his life. And interestingly, in 1 Samuel, way back, chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, when the people asked for a king, Samuel says to them, that's not a great thing. When you get a king, you'll find that these kings will take from you. They won't be like God. They won't give. They won't serve. Well, David is now king. Chapter 5, he took Jerusalem. And he made it his capital. And then he very humbly called it the city of David. And then he took a whole bunch of wives and concubines, probably from the foreigners who were in that city. And he made himself a harem. And then in chapter 6, he took the ark and he attempted to drag it up to his sanctuary in his city. And his carelessness took the life of one of the guys 
who was one of his sheep that he should have been shepherding. And then he saw, well, he got angry and he dumped the ark like a hot potato. And then he saw there was blessing the place where he was at. So he went, I'll have some of that. And he took the ark again. And he still didn't do it very well. And in his careless exuberance and his, and his shabby treatment of his wife, he basically took the life from their relationship. And she never had kids. And she disappears from the scene. His wife that he first married way back. But that is not the worst of it. The most worrying thing is that on none of these occasions does David consult with the Lord. In 1 Samuel, when David was on the run, when he was lowly, when Saul was trying to kill him, he was very content to wait for the Lord's leading and everything. Up to the point where, where Saul was handed to him on a platter, he said, no, I'm going to wait for the Lord to deal with this man. And yet, now that he's the king and in charge of everything, he seems a little bit more impatient. He's a bit less inclined to wait for the Lord. In fact, most of what he does in these chapters, many commentators say, are just purely political things. Is David turning out to be, just like Saul, a king of the nations? Well, we'll see as we go through this chapter. And so when we get to the beginning of this chapter in verse 1, we find that the Lord has given David rest. And so David, the people, are at peace. David is settled, he's secure, he lives in a great, lovely new cedar house. All seems to be well, but David sees something and appears to be troubled by it. He's just, he lives in a mansion while the ark of the Lord lives in a tent. And this tent is 300 and something years old. So he calls Nathan the prophet into his house of cedar and he tells him what's troubling him. He says, verse 2, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Well, this is a question. Is this a comment? What, what is David getting at here? What does he want? Is he embarrassed when he looks at his house? Is he thinking like the kings of the nations who, when they were in that situation, first thing they would do is go build a temple for their God so that their God knew how thankful they were, but also so the people knew that God was on their side? Is he concerned for the Lord, genuinely? Is he hoping to show God just how thankful he really is? Maybe it's all of the above. Whatever it is, David throws the idea out there. And Nathan, who also fails to consult the Lord, says to the king something particularly dangerous. Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Well, we do know the Lord is with David. The text tells us many times. But is everything that's in David's heart with the Lord? Dale Ralph Davis has written a commentary, and uh, in his book on this little interchange between Nathan and David, he says, it's very clear that the kingdom of God is never safe in human hands, no matter how godly those hands might be. And I guess in our situation, that's why we have wardens and parish councils. They're there to support our leaders. They're there to support us. They're there to hold everybody in this congregation accountable. And that's such a great thing that Mike has said, let's pray about this idea to plant a church. Our leaders have plans, 
we should all be praying to see if this is actually God's plan. Is this from God? Is this, does this have his blessing? It's right that we should pray. But neither David nor Nathan did that. David is mighty. David is great. If we skip back to 1 Samuel 2, the, the song of Hannah, we might start to wonder if there's going to be a surprise happening here. Sure enough, there is. That very night, God appears in a dream to Nathan and says, actually, no. And he, well, he doesn't just say no. He actually says a lot. He actually says more than he said to anyone since the book of Deuteronomy. So we need to take notice. And it's interesting to see how he responds. Nathan spoke to the king. Verse 5, God says, go and tell my servant, David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house? And I think this is a bit of a rebuke for both of them. But particularly David, what makes you think you can build me a house? Really? What makes you think I need one? I quite like my house. goes on to say, verse 6, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt. I've been moving about in this tent for my dwelling. See, David, you forget what the purpose of this tent is. You forget that it was built according to my plans. I spoke directly from heaven to Moses. I spent about eight chapters describing in great detail what this tent should be like and everything in it. You think you can do better, David? Or maybe you're thinking that my house looks a little bit stale. Or maybe you think it's a bit too small. It's not impressive enough. Maybe it's too humble for me. You think that maybe I should be living in a house of cedar rather than this fragile tent covered with skin that shows its age and its scars and and all the wear and tear of the 300 years I've been moving with my people wherever they are. Moreover, verse 7, he says, in all the places where I've moved with these people, where where I've met with them, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I think in modern terms, he says, David, stop watching the block. Get back to what I called you to do. You're meant to be shepherding my people. And in the last few chapters, he doesn't seem to have been doing a lot of shepherding of his people. He's not so concerned for them. In fact, he's actually caused some of them to die. God says, actually, I have a better plan. David thought perhaps that he had some plans. God says, settle down. Remember who you are. Remember who I am. Verse 8, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep. that used to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. David, remember, you were just a little kid chasing sheep when I called you. In fact, when I sent Samuel, your dad even forgot he had you. You're great now because I'm great and because I've done great things for you. Nevertheless, despite your impertinence, despite what I know is in your heart, I have a plan for my people and that plan still involves you. You are at rest. I am still working. David, I have plans that go way beyond you and way beyond now. And so he launches into his plan. I will make you a great name. 
I will make for you a great name. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now you should be surprised when you read that. Because didn't we just hear in verse 1 that the Lord had already given David rest? In fact, if you're attentive, you'll be thinking, maybe the Lord has already fulfilled the promise that he made to Abraham a thousand years ago. And in fact, God very carefully quotes many of his promises that he's made, these, these great covenants that he made with Abraham in Genesis. So you see there, Genesis 12, I will make your name great. And that's what he says to David. Then later in Exodus, when he's bringing the people out of Egypt, he says he's bringing them out so he can plant them on my own mountain. This is Moses speaking, on your own mountain, God's mountain. God mentions that to David. And then in Deuteronomy, before the people are about to come into the promised land, and and Moses tells them again of God's plans for them. When God gives you rest so that you live in safety, These are all the things that God speaks of just here. And yet, haven't these things happened? Are they not resting? Are they not safe? Are they not in the promised land? In fact, when David asked the Jebusites from Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 5, about two chapters ago, he actually finished the last step in God's promise to Abraham. If you go back to Genesis 15, when God promises Abraham that he will give them this land... He says, this land belongs to all these ites. And the last one in the list are the Jebusites. And this list appears another 14 times between Genesis and Judges in various different ways and various different orders. But the Jebusites are always the very last in that list. And David has just conquered the Jebusites and claimed the mountain on which they live. And yet God uses the future tense when he speaks of this promise. Apparently it's not fulfilled. Apparently there's something lacking. Well, what is that? Well, as we saw ever since Genesis 3, God has been restoring what was lost in Eden because of sin. Because the goal of God's creation in the beginning was to make the seventh day when God would live with his people. So here in Genesis 2, after the six days of creation, on the seventh day God finished his work and he rested on the seventh day. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because there he rested with the people he created together face to face in perfect relationship. So the end point of creation, you could could say, put it in these terms, God was living in the Garden of Eden with his people in his place And they were living under his rule. That was the point of God creating the world. But we all know what happened, don't we? Shortly after, Ab and Eve disobey God, break the communion, and they get banished from God's place. They are thrown out of God's house. Their rest is taken from them. They're told they're going to work hard. And they are kept away from God's holy sanctuary by these cherubim. That's the best picture I could find. Uh, that guard its entrance. 
And the rest of the Bible is a story of God's uh, plan to restore this broken relationship. And that's what the essence of the promise to Abraham is. I will, bring, I will make you a people and bring you back to my place and bless you. And we will be together. That's the same promise he made to Moses. And that's what God is now promising to David. And when God commanded Moses to build the tabernacle that, that just provoked David's question here, it was meant to be a little mini mobile version of the Garden of Eden. It was a place where God would appear and live with his people and, and dwell with them. But it was never going to be exactly like the Garden of Eden because there was this problem of sin. God was holy and people were sinful. You can read Leviticus, it's all about that. It's a great read. But his people were still kept at a distance. They were still kept at bay by the cherubim, which were embroidered in the curtain in front of the Holy of Holies and these two cherubim that sat on top of the ark. The people could not live face to face with God because, well, they were unable to overcome their sin. And in fact, the story from, from Genesis to now really has been a story of the failure of God's people to conquer their sinful ways and their wayward hearts. And so that's why God says to David, I still have work to do. In fact, I have work to do on your house. I have work to do on you. If you read 1 Chronicles, there's a, there's a passage that basically tells exactly the same story as this. And in it, God says to David, you are not going to build my temple because you have blood on your hands. See, God knows what is in David's heart. And God knows what's about to come out of it in the next few chapters. And God knows that David's failure as a parent is going to cause chaos, much like a Brazilian soap opera, in the next few chapters of uh, Samuel. And God knows that David and his sons are going to cause endless problems for his people until God punishes them and sends them into exile. Because David and his sons and his people are all sinful. And they need that sin to be dealt with before God can really restore Eden and live with them face to face. And so God reveals a little bit more of this plan to David. He says, David, I will make you a house. And in verse 12 to 13, he says, David, you are not the end point of my plans. You're going to die, but my plan will march on. Because I'm working on an eternal house that sin and death cannot defeat. You will sin. Verse 15, your sons will sin, but this collective sin will not defeat my plans. In verse 16, he says, time will march on, and it'll wear out everything. It'll even wear out this tabernacle, but even time will not defeat my plans. I will build a house that is far more permanent than this building that you're looking at now. And at the center, in verse 14, is the key. He says, David, you will fail as a father, but I will not. I have made promises my people to live with them. Soon I will bring them into my house. I will raise up your offspring, and I will be a father to him, and he will be my son. And God speaks of this intimate, personal relationship that he had with Adam. Adam was known as the son of God. And God sees a son for himself in David's line, and he says, this son will be my eternal son, and his kingdom will be my eternal kingdom, and nothing will stop this from happening, and nor will it ever end. 
And so verse 17, in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. George Athos, who teaches at Moore College, teaches Old Testament, says of this passage, appropriately there is no ending to this episode. It finishes on the high note of Yahweh's sovereignty and gracious blessing. Thus, the echo of these promises resounds throughout the rest of the book as we wait to see how David's son will emerge to build the temple of Yahweh. And it sets us up to see just what is at stake in the struggles between David's sons in the rest of 2 Samuel. And as we finish Samuel and get into 1 Kings, we see this son appears, Solomon. And he appears to be the promised son. He builds a temple. He expands the kingdom, but then he fails, and he falls, and he dies, and he has two sons who are just stupid, and they destroy and divide his kingdom. And then, well, it just goes even worse from there. And so this passage was important for Israel as they lived through this endless sinfulness of David's sons and his sons and his sons. And this sin that led them into exile and appears to have extinguished the Davidic line. And so when this book was written, these promises were a great hope for the people of Israel who were in exile and who were forced to cling to this promise when it really looked like death and sin and time had defeated it. And everything after this in the Old Testament that speaks about a coming king and a coming saviour looks back to this promise. And after the destruction of the temple, after the return from exile, the prophets look forward to a time when a son of David will ascend the throne again. Well, that's what I meant for the Old Testament believers. How does it work for us? Well, it will be no surprise to you, especially given that we read the passage from uh, 2 Corinthians. When the New Testament looks back at this passage... It says God fulfilled this in Jesus. And so in the New Testament, we see that that this awaited anointed king who's coming, this Messiah, this Christ, is Jesus, the son of David, the son of Adam, the son of God, who comes in Mark's gospel and says the kingdom of God is at hand. In John's gospel, he says, I am God's tabernacle. I am God's dwelling in flesh. And I give you the right to become sons and daughters of God. And Paul tells us that he died to kill death and conquer death. And he rose, Hebrews says, to give us eternal rest, an eternal Sabbath rest to enter. See, Jesus is the place where God chooses to dwell and live with his people. In John 14, Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The Father who dwells in me. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He is the house of God. And when he talks to his disciples in in, uh, John 14 and, and it looks like he's about to be killed and his tent is about to be destroyed, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in his promises. Trust in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? He calls us to trust in him. He calls us to trust that he will deal with sin and make us a way to live in God's house forever. And so we get to the book of Revelation and John sees the vision of the dwelling place of man descending from heaven. 
He says, now he will dwell, God will dwell with them and they will be his people. I will be his God and he will be my son. The throne of God and the lamb will be in this new Eden and his servants will worship him there and they will see his face. And so if you remember for the first slide, we live somewhere in between Jesus' coming, his first coming, and his second coming. And we live waiting for the same promise to be fulfilled, that God will bring his kingdom. As we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. And so how do we respond to this? Well, the good news is David shows us how to respond. And so we'll briefly have a look at his answer. And it's very simple. Two sections. He praises God and he petitions God. And so in verse 18, we see that David goes in and sits before the Lord. He, he's been rebuked and he knows who he is now. And he says, who am I, Lord God? I'm not worthy to receive such a great blessing. I'm not worthy for all that you have done for me. It's, it's too much. And yet, what you've done for me is just a small thing. Verse 19, you have much bigger plans for all mankind. What can I say? You know who I am. You know the evil that is in my heart. And I know that you know. And that's the beauty of God giving him this promise now before he really spectacularly fails. And unlike God's previous promises in the Bible, this promise is unconditional. And this promise is unconditioned. There are no conditions that need to be met before God will give the promise. And there are no conditions to maintain the promise. Because God knows what's in men's hearts. And he knows that if there are any conditions attached, this promise would never, ever happen. It could never be fulfilled. And so he says, I know what you're like, and I will do it anyway. And so if you read the Psalms that David has written... 139, for example, you see that God, that David understands that when God reveals his sinfulness, it shows him his need for a savior. And I can imagine that David was happy to have this promise after he committed his uh, adultery with Bathsheba. He clung to the promise of God's faithfulness when he had just been so terribly unfaithful. And Psalm 51, we have it in our liturgy. His prayer of repentance when he turned to God and said, I'm sorry, I have done wrong. Confident that his sin would not conquer God's promise. And so read the Psalms. There's so many beautiful Psalms of David that reflect on his awareness that he needs God. Psalm 16, Psalm 17 speaks of his desire to be near God, to be heard by God, to be rescued by God, to know God more, to be kept safe in his presence and to rejoice in God's steadfast love. It's beautiful to see how many psalms reflect on David's love for God's temple, his delight in his word. And so David in verse 21 says, because of your promise, according to your heart, you have brought all this greatness on me. And because David is so small and so sinful, just like us, as we saw last week, that shows just how great and how good and how holy God is, that he would love someone so unlovable and so fickle. And so David says, there's 
There's no one like you. Who is like you? Who are like your people who you have redeemed and saved and showered with grace? And so David praises God. And then in verses 25 to 29, he asks of him something. Two things. Verse 25, be yourself, God. Be true to yourself. Keep your promise. You've, you've spoken, confirm the word that you have spoken and do as you have spoken. And then verse 29, he says, please keep blessing me. Bless me forever. See, God, David understands that the answer to this great promise and this grace is just to praise God and ask him for more grace. So the question is, how do you respond to God's grace? So I think, I'm normally fairly decent. I say thank you. And then I tell God what I'm going to do for him. And sort of ruin it, really. Because I feel like I have to justify that he's done good things to me. I can't be that bad. Or I'm worried that if I'm not thankful enough or I don't do stuff, then he won't keep being gracious to me. But maybe we should be just like David, who says, yeah, you know who I am. I'm just going to throw myself at your feet and ask you to keep your promise and ask you to bless me some more. Who am I? What is my house that you've done this for me? See, last week, Matt reminded us from 2 Corinthians that we do live in sinful mortal bodies. And it was beautiful in those passages. They picked up the same language that we see here. He talked of our tent and the house that God is preparing for us. And Paul and Jesus and all the disciples in their lives, it looked like death and sin and time would mock the promise of Jesus. It looked like God's promise was defeated when Jesus died. And when we look at our feeble earthly bodies, we're tempted to forget that we have a building from God. That He is making a house for us, not made with human hands, but an eternal house in the heavens. And he who has prepared for us this very thing is God. God who has given us his spirit as a guarantee so that we can walk by faith and not by sight. And so I think we're so often tempted to think we must do something to receive grace. Or we must do something more to receive more grace. And as Matt pointed out, we often end up just looking at ourselves and our sinfulness and our ambiguity and our own feeble efforts and we just get depressed. And what we need to do is look to Jesus. Look to God, look to his promises and what he has already done for us in Jesus. And as we look and see him, we get transformed into his image, into the temple that he is. And so here I think David reminds us that the appropriate response to God's work in our life, especially when we fail, is to ask him to keep his promise and give us more grace and more of his glory that we see in Jesus. Amen.
for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.